0: Hi, I'm Susie McAvail. I live and work on Wurundjeri, Wirrawan country in Nam, Melbourne, Australia. And working in education, I've noticed that in this COVID era, young people are not coping with life as well as they used to. But what I've come to understand is these symptoms are signs of a bigger picture and that some of us adults, we also need some help with how to deal with life changes particularly when it comes to understanding ourselves and relating to one another and our kids. The Let's Check In podcast shares stories and strategies of real people who commit to paving positive ways forward through uncertainty. We talk about the things that you didn't learn at school, that you wish someone had prepared you for. So, let's check in. hi and welcome to the let's check in podcast do you have a loved one who's faced ibf or maybe you have struggled with trying to conceive yourself there's a lot of joy around babies but we don't seem to talk about the hard times around it much and the roller coaster of uncertainty that it really is and that's why for this episode i'm so honored to introduce you to associate professor kate stern kate is associate professor of obstetrics and gynaecology at the University of Melbourne Royal Women's Hospital. She is also Head of Reproductive Services, Head of Endocrine and Metabolic Services at the Royal Women's Hospital, Clinical Director, and Head of Clinical Research at Melbourne IVF. She also co-chairs the COSA Fertility Preservation Guidance Committee. In 2022, Kate was appointed an Officer of the Order of Australia for Distinguished Service to Gynaecology, Reproductive Medicine, and fertility research and today continues to lead and deliver world class healthcare to people who so importantly need her expertise. Kate, what a treat it is to have you here. Welcome to the Let's Check In podcast.
1: Thank you very much for having me, Susie. I'm thrilled to be here.
0: Now, your service to healthcare spans well over 20 years, which is quite incredible. Across your years of service to health, what have been the reoccurring themes that you've noticed with those who step inside your consult rooms?
1: It's a very interesting question, Susie. I think what I'm always flawed about, but it is recurring, is that feeling that people are prepared to come and talk to you and share their stories with you, and I feel enormously privileged to be in that situation. You know, it it strikes us as doctors that. People don't even know us and they come into our room and they share their story, their sadness, their hardships. You know, it's a bit of a hallowed space. So it it might sound a bit simplistic, but it's something that just gets me every time. The fact that we're in this privileged position, that people will share their stories with us and that they will trust us to help them. So that's one of the really most important things that I just think about fairly frequently actually. I think there is increasing health awareness and I've really noticed that over the years and the fact that our patients really want to be empowered to be part of the conversation about their fertility journey or whatever their medical problem is. So I think it's the fact that patients tend to put trust in us and keep that trust until we do something to disabuse that as the first thing. Secondly, patients are really empowered to understand what's going on and they want us to help them understand and for them to be part of the journey. They're the really important things and they're not particularly related, but they're the two things that sort of hit me all the time.
0: Yeah, it's a really good point you make about like people feeling empowered and stepping into your room, really having, I guess, a sense of agency around, you know, even making the decision of, wanting to have a child, I can imagine, you know, so much of that journey is about really making a few decisions before they even get to board your rooms. Uh, yeah, I'm assuming that's something that maybe
1: over time has kind of changed. Yeah, I think it has. I think what's changed is the old days of the autocratic doctor. You know, you go in there, you tell them their story, they tell you what to do or what they're going to do that's really changed over my and it was very nice of you to say 20 years because unfortunately it's i think about 35 now so is it really? thank you <laughs> so i have really noticed over the years the trust hasn't changed and but the you know the desire to be well informed has and what's very interesting is that as a doctor or a health professional you mustn't misinterpret that agency and that feeling of empowerment as a mistrust in you. It's not that they don't trust you. It's a really important point, I think. You know, patients still trust us until proven otherwise, but they really, really are um our patients from all walks of life, it doesn't matter what your socioeconomic status is, it doesn't matter what your education is. It's affected a little bit by the type of culture that you've been brought up in in an autocratic, sort of male-dominated culture, perhaps um, there is less agency, there is, you know, less of a feeling of being able to be part of the solution. But I really have noticed over the years that health education and health literacy is really increasing. Now, what comes with that, though, is a lot of misinformation. It would be cool if every time you went on Dr. Google or Wikipedia, or searched anything, that what you were getting was factual information that would help empower you. But the downside of it is the misinformation and the urban myth and the, uh, yeah, the, the misinformation um, can be quite deleterious to someone's mental state and their whole sort of sense of the journey. Yeah. But unfortunately, that's something that comes with the greater good, which is health literacy and empowerment to to find out about what's going on and to how to help yourself.
0: You know, it's really interesting. There's, there's a lot of joy around babies, but I don't think there's a huge amount talked about around the hard times around it enough. And there can be such vulnerability and uncertainty with the journey of trying to have kids. What puts a patient's mind at ease when it comes to, to really managing these emotions?
1: I think you make a really good point, Susie, because for a lot of people, there's this feeling of failure when they come. It's sort of things haven't gone their way, and so they feel embarrassed or ashamed, and sometimes there's blame in a relationship, etc. So, you know, when you come into this journey to share it with your healthcare professional, it's really, it's really, really tough. I, I think. Some of the things that are helpful are knowing that you are not alone. You are not alone. Over 15% of people have difficulties getting pregnant. Now, some people don't have a partner or in a same-sex relationship, and so they're going to rely on treatment. Other people have been trying for a while without success. There's often a lot of pressure from families. You know, everyone's journey is their own. But one of the really common themes is that feeling of failure. And I think it's really important to know that you're part of, unfortunately, of a very, very big group. You know, it's really tough. And we all know people who have been on that journey and have had really difficult times. So all of us are touched by friends or family that have had difficulties conceiving. So I think the first thing is thinking you're knowing that you're not alone. I think the second thing is knowing that you can be a part of fixing this in in an empowered way. And that's through health literacy, having a good relationship, but but you don't have to take the burden on yourself. You're not sharing the burden, you're sharing the, the knowledge. And I think that's important. You don't want to feel that you have to share the burden of making your decisions but what you're doing is sharing the education and the understanding. The third thing, and I think you were alluding to it, Susie, is the lack of control. Now, a lot of people are in control of most things in their life. And when you come into this situation where you're wanting to have a baby and for whatever reason you can't, there is this terrible loss of control. And not only is that disempowering, but it makes us anxious as well. And it's hard to sit with that. So I think pulling it out and understanding that and knowing that you're going to go through those feelings does help you. You know, it's sort of frustrating and I'm glad I'm not a psychiatrist because you can understand something, but it may not make you feel better. But I think it makes you feel a little bit better. So understanding that it's a, you know, it feels like a solitary journey, but you're like many other people, understanding that, you know, you'll feel better when you understand. Well, you don't have to understand it all, but you just it's good to be part of understanding it. And I think saying, look, this is one of those times in my life when I am not in control. And I know my doctor's going to try and help me feel in control, but I have to sit with this. I have to call it out. I have to talk to my friends and my family about that disquiet it puts in me. And I'm going to have to live with that. You know, Knowing about it rather than that sick feeling in your gut or your chest, and you don't know what it is, you don't know what to call it, but often it's a lack of control.
0: Gosh, you make some really great points there because so often, and I find myself, you know, saying this sometimes when I'm in a situation where I feel like I have a lack of agency is that, you know, information is going to be powerful in this situation. You know, if only I get the information, then they'll be able to feel better about it. But you make a really great point about sitting with that state. Of uncertainty and
1: the lack of agency and control, don't you? I I think calling it out and sitting with it really is, it it is very helpful because you stop fighting it then. You know, you're not lying down and letting them, everyone walk all over you. Of course not. But but you're just calling it out and realizing it. And you know, when you think about self-awareness and understanding, I think Knowing that there are those situations that just press our anxiety and our stress buttons, but they're part of this what we've got to go through. And so we're just gonna to have to say, are there are those times and you know, even as a healthcare professional, particularly in this area, and I work a lot with cancer patients having fertility treatment, you just have to really get good at that. You have to because we have the uncertainty as well, and you have to live with that uncertainty, knowing that you've done everything that you can but that you can't change it. I, I, you know, you can't completely change how you feel about it. So I think it took me to my mid-40s to recognise that really. But it's hard. It's really hard. It really is because breaking bad news is really tough, you know,
0: and I can only imagine that there would be hours and days for you that present some really challenging moments. What are your strategies to process
1: such an emotionally taxing and demanding jobs. Do you mean in terms of managing with the patients or managing myself? Yourself. I think I'm a plain speaker and a plain thinker probably. No one could ever say they don't go home and fret sometimes. We all do. And the people that say, oh, it gets better, you get used to it, breaking bad news, that's rubbish, you don't. But you just have to feel confident that you really have done everything that you can and that you will continue to do everything that you can And when you can't do things, you can actually have the courage to say, this is the limit of what I can do and the rest is going to be beyond me as well, but we'll do it together. I I think that we should always feel confident about explaining the limit of our expertise and our as healthcare professionals control. And, you know, I think it's a good conversation to be able to have with a patient that You're doing everything you can. I'm doing everything I can. I don't understand why it's not working, but I know that often it doesn't. But we're going to keep doing everything until we get there with the small possibility that we may not, we will manage that. I think it's that feeling that whatever happens, we can manage that together. And I I think it's part of that sort of treatment of anxiety as well, isn't it? That thing that it's okay. People say it won't happen. It won't happen. Well, things do happen and bad things do happen. I feel confident about knowing that practically everything can be managed. You know, I can't promise that things are going to go well, but I can promise that we'll manage and we'll muddle through and everyone will do their best. And I find that comforting, actually. Yeah. The other thing is knowing that I have been able to discuss hard stuff, I think You know, we do all shy away from hard stuff and sometimes we can just like pat people on the hand and go, it's going to be all right. But actually you can't do that all the time. And one thing that I think comes with experience is you get a bit more confident or a bit more comfortable is better than confident. Embracing the awkward and dealing with hard things, not being afraid to deal with hard things. I mean, in all of us, in all our lives, we all have to deal with hard things unrelated to medicine you know, my husband is always joking about, first of all, you know, Kate, she's got no preamble. She just launches in. And then he said, and she's, you know, she's always happy to just embrace the awkward. It's not a happiness. It's, I feel comfortable when I've got to talk about something. It's just okay to talk about it and you just got to do it. Hmm. And so I think that they're the tools that help me get through. And also we all need to switch off, don't we? We all need to have some sort of division between our brain manically thinking about what we're doing with our work having some sort of time whether it's mindfulness or exercise or knitting or going for a walk whatever you do you need to give yourself those times and while podcasts are amazing thank you and I listen to them all the time (laughs) you actually need to have some time I think when you haven't got any hyperstimulation Hmm, because that's an odd thing for busy people to get used to. I'm sure you find the same thing. To just sit is, you know, it's pretty hard to sit when you're multitasking and you're doing this. But actually sometimes, you know, there's been a lot in the paper recently about silent walking and uh, in the media the last few weeks. And I think that there is something in that. I think that that is really good. And I talk to my patients about having time to just be whatever strategy you can do to do that but just don't be hyper-stimulated it might sound like a long bow but part of being busy all the time actually it stops the bad and the hard and the sad thoughts sometimes and so I think actually when you stop and you walk or you just sit and you're not being hyper-stimulated you're actually letting those things wash through and hopefully they wash through then and not at two o'clock in the morning when you're lying in bed You
0: know, part of that is also sitting with the uncomfortable. Because let's be honest, the uncertainty doesn't feel so great. And it can evoke all sorts of feelings. As you said, that feeling in the pit of your stomach where you just don't know what to do. You don't know what the next step is. And it feels really awful.
1: (laughs) It is. It's an awful physical feeling, isn't it?
0: Yeah. And I guess that's the thing with experiences that you get more used to what that feels like and that you know that you can build like a sense of resilience around it or threshold to kind of hold it.
1: That's exactly right. That's a really good way of putting it, Susie. And you can live with that. You can live in that situation and it's okay to feel that. I feel like it's what it is
0: to be human, right? I feel like so many of us kind of feel like we want to get rid of that feeling. We don't want to feel it anymore, but it's like, well, if we embrace the feeling, call it out, like you say, and move with it, like Georgie Collinson, who I spoke to in the second episode, she's number one anxiety therapist, and she was talking about diving under the wave and going with it, not standing solid in the wave, thinking you're not going to get knocked over because you're going to
1: get knocked over, but it's about going with it. It's really important for all of us in our life, I think, to be able to not be scared of having that feeling of uncertainty, not block it out all the time. I think you're absolutely right. And I think that the analogy the psychotherapist mentioned is really, really relevant.
0: I have to say, it's really heartening to hear that someone like you, who's so incredibly established and, and such an expert at your level, could admit to that. And I think what you spoke before about, you know, your honesty and your transparency and the fact that you just say it how it is, to me what comes through is like you really value relationships you really value trust in relationships and when you're able to be honest with people you can start to accrue that kind of in the relationship like that they know that they can trust that what you're saying is true and that you're giving everything you possibly can and that's extraordinarily comforting to someone who's sitting on the other
1: side of the room it works both ways so the we, we need our patients to trust us and, and tell us how they are really feeling as well. So I think that's really important too. Do you
0: feel like sometimes that doesn't always happen?
1: Yes. Well, I think we all know, don't we, that we have these interactions and relationships and most of the time you think you've got a good handle and sometimes you think you haven't got a handle on how somebody's thinking. A- and that's okay because you can say, look, I'm really not sure where you're at, whatever. But the, the difficult situation is when you think you have a handle on on something and so you're making decisions based on that, but actually the patient hasn't felt confident to really tell you how they're feeling. But instead of sort of not telling you how they're feeling, they're actually telling you something that they're not feeling because they're worried about telling you how they really are feeling. And and that happens not very often, really not very often. But you know what I mean? It's not It's not the neutral, it's more you know, getting the wrong impression rather than no impression.
0: Kate, a large part of your role is actually about leading other specialists. What are some of the most challenging parts of that side of the job?
1: I think what you want to be able to do is bring everyone with you, enthuse and excite people. And most importantly, you want people professionally and in other spheres, to have agency or to feel that they can change things and make a difference. That I think that's one of the most important things in our profession. You know, probably completely inappropriately, even when I was a first or second year resident, if I was cross about something, I'd march off. And And I think it was relevant that I'd done that, you know, even if it was to somebody who was very, very senior. Because I thought, well, if I say something, we might, you know, and if it's true, we might be able to affect change. And I think it doesn't actually matter where you are in your career. Everybody should feel that they can be part of a solution. And that is one of the most important things that I have noticed in my working environment is I'm always stunned when people say, oh, you know, there's just no point raising it because nothing will happen. I'm incredulous when I hear that and so devastated because probably quite inappropriately, inappropriately, I'm sure, I've always felt that everyone can be part of a solution and should speak out and that everyone is empowered. And, you know, I don't run my own organization, but if I did, I think the thing that I would ask people about most is, do they feel that they can speak up, number one? no matter how unpleasant it is, or if they've got good ideas, and that they have agency and that they can be listened to and be part of a solution. When people say that they don't feel that they have the power to be able to say what they think and and try and affect change, that really upsets me and worries me. And it doesn't matter who you are, how smart you are, how much money you earn, where you are in the pecking order. Everybody needs to feel that. And, you know, one of the things that is our passion in, um, in the world in the world that I work in is fertility for cancer patients. And it's a great example of everyone from the first person that picks up the phone, to the person that takes the details, to the you know the administrator, to the nurse, to the counselor, to the scientist, to the clinicians, to the family. It's one of those situations where everyone, actually has agency to get involved and help and if they're not happy with how we're doing it they'll tell us and that's what I think should be the key to any organization and any sort of um, you know place where people are working and trying to do their best is just you're all part of the solution and that's why I admire whistleblowers so much and I'm always sort of I, I know it's complex but I'm always sort of disheartened when I hear about the problems that they have and because everybody needs to feel that they can say what's good and say what's not good. I really I feel that very strongly. Yeah it's like that
0: care factor isn't it? Giving people that license to be able to take ownership and owner and input so that they do invest as much as they
1: possibly can otherwise we're just robots. That's exactly the point Susie because If you feel that there's no point talking about something that you're not happy about, like for us, it might be something to do with patient care. We think patients should get more information or something happens. If you feel that you can't help, you can't speak to people about that and try and make it better, then I think it's hard to put all your energy and your love and your hard work into your career or your profession in an environment when you don't feel able to do that. I think it's a really important part of working in any workplace culture. And you're right, it has to come from the top. And it has to be not just rhetoric, not just, you know, words.
0: Totally. And I think what you're talking about there is about integrity and
1: authenticity. Yes, I think that's right. It's funny when you say, oh, someone seems very authentic. It's just like stupid to say that because you either are or you're not. But yes, I've been very lucky in that the places that I have worked in my career, have been led and filled with people that I admire so much and that truly lead well and are authentic and don't have secondary gain. You know, they always say to choose someone to lead an organization, you need someone who doesn't need the job, you know. That, and that's why I think I feel empowered to speak up, you know, about things. Like sometimes I'm annoying about it, I know about stupid things, but. And probably I cloud by by whinging about too many things, you know, so many ideas and too many things. It probably gets distilled. But I've been lucky in my public hospital life and my private fertility life and the university to have really great leaders and mentors who have open door policy. And I think that open door policy—it's not talk to your manager. It's you can you don't want to dob on someone without talking to that person, but you want to be feel that you can talk to anyone in your organisation and be listened to.
0: Part of your training, Kate, saw you specialise in fertility preservation for people, and you alluded to this before, who have had cancer treatment or other serious disease. What? drew you towards specialising in such a niche area?
1: So when I came back from the UK and I was working in our reproductive services unit, the Royal Women's, at the old Royal Women's Hospital just in Ligon Street, it was fabulous at lunchtime. <laughs> my boss, Lyndon Hale, who's fantastic, and my other boss, John McBain, they, with one of our scientists, Deborah Cook, had just started talking about, you know, how to help patients and what was happening was that patients and their families were coming to us saying my daughter or I am sick and I know that the cancer treatment's dangerous to fertility we need some help so this came to us from patients when I talk to my colleagues around the world they all say the same thing it came from the questions that patients posed to us what can you do to help me have fertility in the future after I get better from my cancer. And what's so powerful about it is that it's what keeps a lot of patients going because they're going to survive and therefore fertility is going to be important. So talking about your future fertility is a really important part of cancer care. And we had the questions posed to us from patients and relatives and then started to come from health professionals and Our scientist, Deb Gork, at that time was really investigating, doing lots of work with mice about eggs and how to grow eggs outside the body and whether you can graft the ovary back in. And with the incredible support of my bosses, who were really at the forefront of a lot of IVF, I mean, you know, when I came in, it was all sorted, really. No, not really, but it was pretty much sorted. So these people had vision. They had vision They were receptive to questions and and taking them on and going, okay, let's try and work on this. And we had support from our institutions to run with it because it was all pretty crazy wacky then. You know, I can remember at the age of 30 or 25 thinking, gee, wouldn't it be great if I could freeze my eggs for the future? I remember thinking that and it was not even a possibility then. And yet here we have freezing of eggs, freezing of tissue, all these amazing things and, and a lot of it has been driven by the questions raised to us by cancer, cancer patients. You know, we didn't think about freezing eggs for elective reasons until we'd done a lot of work with our cancer patients on it. So I sort of fell into it, but it, it came from having the right people around to, to run with it, but also the right questions, you know, pe- people coming to us and saying, solve my problem, goddammit. Oh, that's awesome.
0: Kate, you had such wonderful news recently that you were added to the Queen's birthday list last year. Congratulations. And I just love the story of when you got the call from the governor's office. Can you please just share
1: with us if you're feeling comfortable? Oh, no, it's so embarrassing. The people that had nominated me, I had no idea. I had absolutely no idea. Even my husband had no idea. And I just kept getting these calls and I thought it was from the, um, the mole, the, you know, the Nevis surveillance organization that I was supposed to go and have those really, I find them quite threatening, full body photos to look at all my little moles and my freckles. And the number, I just thought, oh, that's those mole people. So I just kept not answering because I just <laughs> didn't want to go back and have to bear it all. And then once I just went, um, look, I, you know, I really can't talk right now. And this woman goes, oh, it's so-and-so from the governor general's office. And I went, oh, my God, have you rung a few times? And she said, (laughs) yes, multiple times. And the emails had gone to my junk. Oh, no. And I hadn't answered the phone. Oh, my God, it was so. And when I told (laughs) the people that had actually nominated me, they are going, if we'd known that, we wouldn't have done this.
0: Oh, that is so fantastic. That's possibly one of the best stories I've heard.
1: So embarrassing.
0: No, but on a serious note, like, congratulations. What an extraordinary achievement.
1: I mean, how did that moment feel? I honestly didn't believe it. You know, it's sort of, it's incredibly humbling, you know. It's incredibly humbling. And then when you think about it, I I sort of thought about, oh, my God, what those people have done with that. You know, I just feel so... I can't believe the generosity of spirit of people who think that they should, that it's worth doing that for me, you know. And, and then what comes, it's about, it's, you go through phases, don't you? And then the next phase is, I've got to use it well. It's my responsibility, whatever it brings me, and I'm, you know, not sure what it is, but it's not just, oh, you know, you've been recognized for stuff in the past. It's, you've got to use this for good, however that looks. And I don't know how it looks really. But um, you've got to use it or maybe it just empowers you a bit more to feel that you can try and affect change. I think you're doing it, though, just quietly. I think you're already doing it. Well, I think my family like were gobsmacked and, you know, they think I'm the one that can't find my passport in my handbag when we're travelling <laughs> and they can't believe that I could actually hold down a job, let alone do all that. So on the day when we went, you know, for the when you go to get your award and they were, they were very proud, of course. And I was proud to have them with me. I think um, it hasn't changed how much ribbing they give me, but um, I think they went, oh, well, maybe she can do a few things okay. I think. <laughs> Just a few, hey? We're going to
0: move over to the, the space of IVF. For many, the IVF roller coaster is an extraordinarily difficult one and so often is a silent battle. What is the best support that loved ones can offer? to those who are going through IVF?
1: That's a great question. You know, I used to wish I had two cans in my office. One was a can of resilience for the patients and one was a can of resilience for the support people because, you know, it's so tough and it's hard watching someone go through this experience when you can't fix it for them. I think everyone's journey is different and the same person or the same couple... Can have complete the whole sort of roller coaster within even a day, let alone a week or a month or a cycle or a year. I think being prepared to be flexible as a support person, it's hard to explain, isn't it? But I think you've got to accept that there's so many sort of swings around us and we hate seeing our loved ones go through pain. So I think being able to be flexible with how they are on a certain day or a certain hour is really important. To be supportive and to listen. And I know I've been very bad at this. I'm trying to get better at it. Is when someone tells you about how bad they feel or how terrible everything is, you always want to fix it. So you start thinking of the positives and the solutions. And sometimes you just, you can't do that. You just have to go, yeah, that is really awful, isn't it? and not come out with a platitude at the end. So I think being able to be a vehicle to hear what people have, you know, have to say and to let them vent without trying to solve it for them, because often it's not going to be solved that week or that month, but just accepting that you can't solve everything but you're there to listen. And, you know, we all think we're all going to say, look, tell me what I can do to help you, but the person that's going through the misery doesn't know be prepared for trial and error and don't take it personally. You know, we've all had that experience, haven't we, with sort of someone says something, so we've Mm. tried to sort of respond and then it's completely the wrong response. And so then we sort of go retreat and go, well, I'm, you know, I'm obviously saying the wrong thing. I'm not going to help, you know, I'm not going to try again or I'm not brave enough to say it again. But just accept that it's not you. It's just the things that are going on in their mind and you're not going to get it right all the time. I think that part of it. And also particularly when we're doing treatment for people in relationships, both partners will have their own journey and they're not always going to be in the same place at the same time. And that's hard. It's like looking after two people with two different, completely different illnesses. You almost need other people around to help sometimes, but you just have to choose your people wisely. I think people that do this and try and hide it from their families, or they don't want other people to be involved in their journey, and that's fine. But when you're actually actively shielding other people from it or hiding it, I think that's really hard and especially at work, I think that's an extra level of stress that we can all do it without. So I think very rarely is there value in hiding it. You know, if you're scared to tell your parents because they're gonna be really worried about you or, you know, sad for you, you know, you don't want to overshare because you don't actually want people to tell you all about their journey either. But You don't want to add the complexity of hiding something or I think that that can make things much worse as well. You know, it's just hard. It's just be prepared to sort of roll with it, I think. You know, I'm sitting here rolling with it as I talk to you. But I think just being prepared to roll with it and letting someone feel that they can tell you how dark it feels sometimes. Because what I always say to my patients is like, you know, Unfortunately, every single time you do treatment, it's a bit more likely, even if you're in a really great prognosis group, it's a little bit more likely that it's not going to work than it is going to work. You know, pregnancy rates now are pretty amazing, 35 to 40%, but each time it's just a little bit more likely that it's not going to work. And so you can be sad and feel that it's a dark place, but when you've gone through that acute feeling, you must not be despondent about it. But you have to be able to share those dark bits with the people around you that you know and trust, knowing that you're not going to dwell in a dark place. You're not really despondent, but you want to be able to let it out at that moment. And we all know that time heals things a little bit, doesn't it? Even over a few days, there's that sick feeling of you've got your period or your test, isn't it? You just want to die. It's terrible. And you've got to let yourself have that don't instantly get Pollyanna around you telling you it's all fine because it's not you want to be able to experience that and share that but then when you take a step back you're not despondent because you know it's terrible but it's going to be all right in the end probably and you know you come back from that position you have to know that it's a hard journey and that there's not something wrong every time it doesn't work you know it's not another knife to your chest this is a process and so each time it doesn't work doesn't mean that it's not going to work at all. I think, I think it's helpful for people to know that the usual journey is quite a long one because I think there's a lot in the popular press and people advertising and this and that saying, you know, like as, as if you'll get pregnant first, going so your expectation when it doesn't work is that something is really terribly, terribly wrong. And I think we always try and give realistic expectations. Say, look, on average, it's going to take a year. We're going to have so many bad days, but we'll hopefully have some really good days as well. And try and prepare people for the tough times ahead before they happen. I don't think any of us really take that in when someone tells us that, but at least when you fall back, you think, well, they were telling me the truth and it is hard. And that's okay that it's hard because it's most likely still going to be all right. I think knowing that it often it's a long journey and it's a hard journey and not being afraid to share those moments but then pull yourself up after that.
0: Yeah. Kate, on the topic of people who might have had trauma in their family with either childbirths or carrying a child, where do you start as a practitioner with
1: supporting those people through their fertility journey? You're right, Susie. A lot of people have had Enormous traumas. You know, when I was talking before about people presenting and sometimes you you think you haven't got the whole story, but sometimes you think you have, but actually there's a lot of trauma there that you don't know about. I think trying to have people trust you enough to share that with you because that will inform how we go forward. So basic trust first. And again, as we said before, being able to articulate that trauma and share it. And then it might inform how we go forward, but it it may help us give appropriate hope, realistic hope going forward. But I think the other point really about those traumas is understanding what happened. And I think people would talk about that trauma with IVF. People that have finished treatment are often very traumatized by events. And you think, I always try and have, it sounds terrible, but an appointment when we're going to discontinue treatment, and sometimes we do, you know, some people don't get there. Most people do, but not everyone. And I think our our job's really to help people to make sure we've done everything that's possible, but sometimes we don't get there and you want to make sure people are not going to be left with that trauma as well. So it's important to be able to talk through things that happen so that if there are any questions or things that were unclear or things people were unhappy with. Trying to have got those out in the open. I think that will, that helps move on a bit. What you don't want is people to get stuck. There are so many things that you go through that are incredibly traumatic, but what you want to try and avoid is getting stuck. And that can happen with a miscarriage or a stillbirth or a baby that's died or a baby that's had cancer or a family member, a mum that's died before you've started trying to have a child. professional help is actually surprisingly amazingly helpful you know sometimes you think well talking about it how is that going to help me but actually really talented therapists can help you work through what was what happened and reframe it in your mind and and then you're not afraid of it anymore I think you know getting the help that people need but we don't know that people need help often sometimes and so we want them to be able to trust us with that so that we can help them find the right sort of professional support.
0: Uh, trust and honesty is like absolutely crucial, which comes back to the relationship again and having that sense of authenticity from both sides and, and honesty from both sides. Kate, tell me about on the topic of uncertainty, what are you feeling most uncertain about at the moment And how are you best supporting yourself?
1: Well, I think that my greatest uncertainty is the state of the world at the moment. And I think that we have so many issues in our greater world, political issues, economic issues, climate issues. My uncertainty is outside my immediate environment and I'm lucky and privileged and secure, but my biggest uncertainties are in those areas. And, you know, sometimes it's just easier to block it out, isn't it? But it goes with everything else. All that stuff I've been saying not to do. I think I do that a bit. But <laughs> my uncertainties are really in the state of our world and our love for each other and our kindness to each other. Apart from blocking it out, what are your strategies? Sit with it, you know. The thing is I'm someone who normally feels that I've got a solution for everything – And the reason that these are uncertainties for me is that I don't have any bright ideas and I just, you know, well, I have some ideas, I think, but it would involve changing the way a lot of our population thinks. But (laughs) I think I just have to sit with that and I feel disquiet and I feel anxious about that sometimes. I really do. But we've all got to do our little bit. I do a little bit of stuff, you know, outside my work. I do some stuff in those areas a little bit that I feel like I'm doing my bit. I'm not doing much at all, but I I feel less powerless by doing a little bit in those areas. But, I, you know, unfortunately, I'm very much an optimist. I really am an optimist and I feel like there can be solutions and that if we're all a little bit kinder and, you know, think of the bigger picture, which I know it's easy for me to say because I'm in a very privileged position, but I just try and deal with that uncertainty by having a lot of optimism about the future our world's future in those areas that are of particular concern to me and just engaging in little bits of those things that I feel I might be able to do something.
0: Associate Professor Kate Stern, not only are you incredibly dynamic, intelligent is an understatement, medical specialist, but you're emotionally in tune with the needs of people who sit in front of you. Now, people can follow Associate Professor Kate Stern on Instagram, under sweet three underscore fertility and find out more. Kate, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting today. Thanks so much for your time and providing and leading world-class healthcare to people
1: who so importantly need your expertise. Thank you so much for having me, Susie. It's been really, I love talking with you. Thank you.
0: Thanks for checking in with me today. I'm your host, Susie McAvelle. And if you like what you heard, please subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen and leave a review. If you'd like to find out more about the Let's Check In podcast, head to the website, letscheckinpodcast.com, where there's loads of information in the show notes. You can also follow us at Let's Check In podcast on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn and TikTok. This podcast is not a licensed mental health service and it is not a substitute for professional mental health advice. If something has come up for you in this episode, you can call Lifeline on 13 11 14. This podcast has been made with the help of Pod and Pen Productions.